0: Today, what I'm going to do is to share with you a set of slides first, and uh, then uh, read uh, something that I have written down. So if you are ready, uh, we will go straight to the slides. Okay, Meditations for Troubled Times, this is what we've been looking at. We were looking at the paradox. So we looked at the paradox of faith, the paradox of God's promise. The paradox of God's grace, the paradox of God's command last week, and today I would like to look at the paradox of interpreting God's commands, interpreting the Bible. There are four ways theologians say we can interpret the Bible. The first is literal, that is the verbal inspiration of every text. It does not allow for individuality and style of the author because God is the ultimate author inspired by Holy Spirit. So the human authors do not come into the picture at all. It's all God. Uh, I'm assuming you understand what I'm talking about. So the Bible is inspired literally and the human authors have nothing to do with it. They were just like a pen, you know, that a person holds in his hand to write. So the pen, okay, the pen writes, but it is not the pen who is writing kind of thing. Initially, it was a reaction against the allegorical interpretation of the bible actually jerome probably uh, he was a great guy jerome of alexandria probably was the first person to talk about the literal interpretation of the bible and from there onwards others including augustine martin luther calvin they all went into this literal interpretation as is the case with everything else when you react against something, the pendulum seems to swing so far out to the other extreme. So unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, the literal interpretation is a good example of the pendulum swinging too far away uh, because of the uh, reaction against the allegorical interpretation of the Bible, which was very prevalent at the time of St. Jerome, especially Oregon. Uh, he was oh, every, everything was allegorical for Oregon. The second is moral interpretation, looking for what are the moral teachings in the Bible. We are not too worried about the text itself, but the moral teachings. So the ethical principles for life, individual and community at each period in human history, what is it teaching us? The next one is allegorical. What is allegorical? It seeks the meaning hidden in the text. It says that there is something in the text. There is something in the text that is hidden and they are looking for it. Looks for types and shadows, creates archetypes and prototypes. Now, if you're wondering what all that is, for instance, Noah's Ark, allegorically, it is a church. Okay, so the Noah's Ark is the church uh, of the New Testament. Or uh, the Levites' concubine's rape and murder, which we've been studying in Alive 1, week 4, is allegorical. It is not about a woman being abused. It is about the sacrifice of Jesus. This woman is a type Jesus, type of Jesus sort of thing. The fourth is mystical. I suppose uh, the Jewish Kabbalah, I don't know if you heard of it. There's a sect or a group in the Jewish community called uh, Kabbalah. They are a, probably a classic example for the mystical. Understanding the mystical union. Also, some aspects of veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus, might come into that as well. But in orthodoxy itself, there is a mysticism about orthodoxy. Now, mystical should not be confused with something else, and that something else to me is the fourth one mystery. So, mystical is not mystery. So what is mystery? For example, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We see this in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus' response is very simple. Jesus said, it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, some things are going to be a mystery. You don't need to worry about it. You just focus on what you need to do and what I have instructed you. You may remember, uh, I think it was Peter asked about the sons of Zebedee, What is going to happen to them? Jesus said, mind your own business. You know, you, you just do what you have to do and God can take care of the rest. Another example would be in Second Corinthians chapter 12. We know, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. God knows. I like that. You know, I know a guy, 14 years ago he went up to heaven. But if you ask me, did he go in the body? I have no idea. I mean, this is Paul speaking about his own experience. Out of the body? No idea, man. And that's how they say in Australia no idea. God knows. See, something must remain mystery. Now, if you ask me, I subscribe to all four. I don't have a problem with the literal, I don't have a problem with the moral. Mystical? Well, yeah, okay. Uh, I'm a bit of a romantic. Therefore, there is a bit of mystical stuff in it. But mystery? Yes. There is a lot of stuff that I'm... Just a mystery. We don't know. And God hasn't chosen to reveal to us. So we don't need... You know, The disciples asked, uh, are you going to establish the kingdom to Israel? No, he said, don't worry about it. If God hasn't revealed, and then... Why are theologians sitting down and working out how many days from now until Jesus comes? We know Jesus is going to come. But do we have to work out how many hours or how many seconds before Christ comes? And how many years will be the the rule next? And then who is going to go up and who is going to come down? This is all speculation. We don't need to do that. So let's get back to interpreting the Bible. Literal. I said I subscribe to all four. Literal. There are truths and uh, we need to take them as literally. I don't have a problem accepting the creation story as it is in Genesis. Because it is consistent with God's character. God can create something with one word. All things were created by Him and for Him. And uh, there is no problem with that. Now, I also don't have a problem with the idea that the world that God created in one day or in six days was a mature world. In other words, the rock that God created was probably millions of years old. Hey, God created Adam and Eve. How old was Adam and Eve when God created them? One day old? Who cut the umbilical cord then? You know, how old was Adam and Eve? Were they 25 or 28? 35 or 40? So if God can create a mature man and woman... Who could speak to him and he could speak to them. God could also create a tree that is probably 300 years old or 3000 years old. God could also create a river that is many million years old. Why not? So this whole talk about these fossils and all these things to me is irrelevant. Because if God can create something, he can create a million year old star. Or millions and billions of years old star. Why not? I don't think there is a problem. It doesn't take God 300 million years to create a 300 million year old star. God can create a 300 million year old star with His Word. Okay, so I'm not getting stuck on it, but I just want you to understand that once it is consistent with the character of God, we don't have a problem with it. It is not outside His character. I don't have a, but I do have a problem accepting the genocide or the mass rape and murder or slavery. Of women because that is inconsistent with the character of God that is revealed in the Bible God does not say we can murder bad people so obviously there is something else that we need to look at this is where I apply the Sherlock Holmes principle which I talked about much earlier in my uh, devotion you remember I talked about the Sherlock Holmes principle that is when you have eliminated the impossible Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So, eliminate the impossible. The impossible in this case is God does not order the rape of women. And if that is in the Bible and somebody says, God told me to rape women, then it is not God. It is something else or somebody else. Don't settle for the easy way out. That will only create a sadistic God and a monstrous world. And we don't want that. Interpreting the Bible. I thought we will take the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, 1-11. to You know the story. The early church. You know, Acts 5 is very, very early. The infant church. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Decent people. They were challenged by the sermon by Peter or somebody. And they go and sell everything they had. They kept a little bit for themselves. Maybe they wanted to buy a hamburger. I don't know. But they kept something aside and brought the rest and put it at the feet of the apostles. And the apostle says, is this everything that you have? They said, yes. Now, that's a lie. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? The guy falls down and dies. Even as they are removing his dead body, and they don't even inform his wife that he is dead. Can you imagine that? You know, his red body is removed and the wife doesn't know. The unsuspecting latest widow walks in. And the same questions, same answers. Bishunk, she is also gone. What can we learn from it? Next time somebody brings an offering to your church or gives a gift to transform for life. By the way, we don't ask questions. You can give as much as you want or as little as you want. But somebody brings a, gives a gift to transform for life. We say, is it everything you wanted God asked you to give? Yes. No, 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 no. God wanted you to give $10,000. You only gave $8,000. you are dead. No. That is not what the scripture says. Now this is something we need to understand. Literal, what is recorded is absolutely true in that it happened. I don't have a problem with it, it happened. I'm not saying it is a lie, it happened. Does it mean that that is what God wanted to happen? This is a question we need to ask. Did God want this to happen? So we need to interpret it morally. You remember I said, I believe in all four. Luke 9, 54. He's a good example. When the disciples, James and John saw this, this is when Jesus and his disciples were passing through Samaria and the Samaritans didn't want to receive them or give them any food or accommodation or anything. And they said, no, you can't. So James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? And in some versions it says, just like Elijah did. So they had a precedence. And remember, Elijah was foremost in their mind because it is in the same chapter where they had the mountaintop experience, where Moses and Elijah appeared to them. So they saw Elijah. So it is very clear. So they said, shall we do it? Because Elijah prophet did. Now listen to what Jesus said. I love the way it says, but Jesus. Don't forget, it is, but Jesus said, turned and rebuked them. In another translation, it says, he said, You don't know what spirit you are of. Jesus did not sanction this, though the prophet did it. They had a precedence. You know, when you go to the court, the lawyer will say, you know, so and so versus so and so, so and so versus so and so. This precedence is there. Jesus says, whatever precedence is there, if you speak out of the character, misrepresent God, it is not going to work with me. Because I have come to reveal the heart of God. So, we ask the question. What would Jesus have done in the case of Ananias and Sapphira when Peter cursed them? That's the question we need to ask. When Peter said, no, you have lied against the Holy Spirit, you're going to die. What would Jesus have done? That's a question we need to ask. Remember, earlier when he was with them alive, when they said, shall we call down fire from heaven? If Jesus were not with them, it is very likely they would have called down fire from heaven like Elijah did. If we do not ask or answer this question right, we will be modeling our life on Peter and not on Jesus. This is the challenge. We must ask the question, what would Jesus have done in the case of Ananias and Sapphira? Would he have allowed Peter to go on? Or would he have stopped him? If we don't ask, answer this question right, or don't even bother to ask the question, we are in big trouble. Because we will be then modeling our life on Peter and not on Jesus. Let me look at another incident, comparing it with Ananias and Sapphira. We said, yes, I believe what is recorded is absolutely true. I believe it happened. So, morally speaking, John 18.10, another event. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now, Jesus was present there, wasn't he? He was standing there because Jesus was just arrested. And what did he do? But Jesus, remember, it is exactly the same phrase. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. And another translation in Luke says, He also put his hand out and touched this high priest servant's ear and healed him. So Luke 22 verse 51 And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So again, what I'm saying is, what would Jesus have done in the case of Ananias and Sapphira? Apply this principle. Take this event. When Jesus was alive, when disciples did something out of character with God's character, Jesus corrected them and said, "Uh -uh, that is not my father. My father wouldn't do it. So what would Jesus have done in the case of Ananias and Sapphira? If we do not ask or answer this question right, we will be modeling our life on Peter who chopped the servant's ear off rather than Jesus who restored his ear and rebuked Peter. We must have courage to rebuke people who do things outside the character of God, no matter how much they claim God has sanctioned it. If it is outside the character of God, it must not happen. I hope I'm making some sense interpreting the Bible. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. This is, he was speaking to the, uh, the religious leaders. He said, you know your problem? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Those two go together, the scriptures and the power of God. Of course, we know the word of God. The power of God and the character of God. In Transform for Life, if you have gone through our training, you would have heard that phrase a thousand times—or oh, well, it may not be thousand, but nine hundred times. The character of God, as revealed in Jesus Christ. The character of God. See, why do we care? What happens when we care? Three things that happen when we care. Week five. A life one. When we care, we discover the character of God we develop the character of God, and we demonstrate the character of God. It is not our story. It is God's story, and we need to get that right. So, Jesus puts the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their place in Matthew chapter 22 and says, you know your problem? You don't know the scriptures. You have read the scriptures, but you don't know it. Reading and knowing are two different things. You have read the scripture. I'm not saying that you haven't read the law of Moses or prophets or the wisdom literature or anything like that. What I'm saying is you do not know. What does it mean to know the scriptures? Knowing the God of the scriptures. That's what it means. You do not know the scriptures means you do not know the God of the Bible. And you do not know the power of the God of the Bible. So, three things Word of God, power of God and the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. So what God instructed Joshua to do? We are back. Let us look at it. This is what we looked at last week. The Lord said to Joshua, this is Joshua chapter 7, stand up. What in the world are you doing lying in sand and dirt and ash and, you know, all that sort of thing. What are you doing down on your face? What a beautiful, beautiful language. You can almost feel it. You can almost see it. Joshua lying, his face covered in ash, you know, and uh, Israel has sinned mate. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. Now, remember, we looked at this. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions, mixed them up. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run. You know why? Because they have been made liable for destruction. It's all they, they, they. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Can you see the problem? Okay, let's look at it in a little bit of detail. Go consecrate the people, God says. Tell them. Consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. This is God speaking. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Let's look at God's instructions. What God instructed Joshua to do. I've summarized it for you. First, Israel has sinned by violating God's covenant. This is what God said to Joshua. Joshua, get up. Why are you lying with your face down in ashes and mud? Look at you, go and wash your face, get a change of clothes, come back. Israel has sinned by violating God's covenant. Second, they are liable for destruction, they are doomed. If I don't kill them, somebody else will. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Fourth, go consecrate the people. Remember, the captain of the Lord's army appeared just before the big launch and said, Joshua, you are standing on holy ground. It's exactly the same thing God says, go consecrate the people. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove the consecrated things which got mixed up or which deliberately got mixed up with your stuff. You have been stealing, you've been hiding, you've been lying. So those things must go. So what did Joshua say to the people? Aha, This is where the problem comes. Let's see what Joshua said to the people. The following are Joshua's words, not God's instruction. We need to be very careful. This is chapter 7 verse 14. In the morning, Joshua says to the people in the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. Did God say this? The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward. Did God say this? Clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. Did God say that? And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Where did Joshua Joshua get this idea from? Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. My word that is gone a long way from what God said. God said destroy the devoted things that you have mixed up with your own things. Joshua takes it a little further and says little further a lot further several kilometers further He says, whatever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along. By the way, this is straight from the Bible. I didn't create it. Along with all that belongs to him. Now, here is the addition, isn't it? He has violated the covenant of the Lord. He, God said they. Joshua says he. God said they. Joshua says he. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem preachers do. And this is why Jesus told the Pharisees, you do not know the scriptures. You think you have read the Bible, but you do not know it. Because you are making God's word convenient for you. I call it theology of convenience. And we have lots of theologies of convenience. He has violated the covenant of the Lord. Lord has done an outrageous thing in Israel. God has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Hello, God said, you have done an outrageous thing because you disobeyed me. You have stolen, you have lied. And Joshua says God has done an outrageous thing in Israel. I don't know what outrageous means in this context. Must be something very nice. So who is speaking here? Not God. These are the words of Joshua. Let's keep going. I think I've summarized Joshua's words. So what did Joshua do? Joshua separated people tribe by tribe. God said Israel has sinned and he separated the tribe of Judah. How? He said the God chooses. How did the Lord choose? I have no idea. It doesn't say how the Lord chose. Uh, most likely he cast lots. I'm assuming. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say how the Lord picked. Did he say anyway, anymore, you, in? I don't know. Did he point some sticks, you know, like they do? No idea. Some scholars say it was Urim and Thummim, but nobody knows what Urim and Thummim is. Or Thummim or whatever it is. Does anyone know what was those things in the... Uh, In the high priest's breastplate, you know, that he kept Urim and Thummim. I don't know. He extracted a confession from Achan. God did not say, go and find out who committed sin. God said, go and get rid of that thing. When God had declared the whole nation guilty, why compel one man to confess? Joshua and the rest of Israel brought out the evidence of crime and spread them out before the Lord. Joshua conducted a mock trial, accused Achan for their defeat, he said, we have lost because of you. God said, you lost because you have sent every one of you. Condemned him and handed him over to the mob. Joshua and the mob stoned Achan, his wife, children, and all that belonged to him. And then they burned them and heaped up large piles of rocks. This is what Joshua did. Now, can you see, we saw what God wanted him to do. And this is what Joshua did. Let us again look at what God told Joshua. He said, Israel has sinned and God said that in six different ways. In case Joshua did not get the message the first time. I mean, I think we read that. They must consecrate themselves. They must destroy whatever among you is devoted for destruction. God said that twice. Joshua cannot say he did not hear it right. How did you get this wrong, Joshua? I ask myself. This is what happens when we become solution focused instead of remaining obedient to God. This is what happens when we follow footprint mindset, instead of walking with God, that is, footstep mindset. Remember, God does not leave footprints. He demands that we walk with Him where He is walking, right now, not once upon a time, with someone else. We looked at this, the paradox of faith. God can bring the walls of Jericho down, And at the same time, God can also save the family of Rahab and herself on the same wall. This is what footstep mindset is. Rahab and her family must believe that God will save her on the crumbling wall. When everything else crumbles around us, the promise of God will still be standing. Number three, this is where Joshua went wrong. This is what happens when we focus on the destination at the expense of the experience of the journey. It is important to know where you are going, but there is something more important, and that is who you are walking with. The one we walk with, his character is so important. Listen to what God said to Joshua, Joshua 7:12. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. When we become preoccupied with solution, footprints, and destination, we only hear what we desperately want to hear. We don't hear the whole truth. We hear bits and pieces of the truth. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Those are the things that you have mixed up. The disobedience. Now, there are leaders and leaders. When Joshua heard that what God said, he began to panic. No supernatural support. You know what God said? I will not go with you. This is what God said. So Joshua said, what? No supernatural support. We are dead meat. If we can't stand against our enemies, then we can't conquer the land. And then we will be destitute. Another 40 years of wandering. You know, poor Joshua just panicked. Now, if you are worrying about it, In a minute, I'll make it clear for you. No, uh, give me three minutes. I'll make it clear for you. You will understand it better. So Joshua decided to take a shortcut. Lord, you wanted me to destroy the things devoted for destruction. Well, I'm going to do better than that. I will sacrifice an entire family to make you happy. We got to win this battle, of course, uh, for your glory. This is what Joshua's thinking is. This is not what God asked or wanted. So you say, why did God not stop him? For the same reason, he did not stop Cain from killing his brother or Joseph's brothers from selling him off as a slave or Adam from disobeying. Besides Joshua and Cain, there are other clever people mentioned in the Bible and clever in italics, by the way. Judges 11, 29 to 31. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah one of the judges. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mishpah of Gilead. And from there, don't worry about all that. I just thought I'll put it in so you don't think that I've taken a little bit out of the Bible. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph, from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burned offering. Now, let me ask you, what did he expect to come out of his house? A monkey? A cat? A dog? Or his daughter? Or his wife? Well, the cat and the monkey or the dog wouldn't know that he has won a battle, but it is very likely his wife and his daughter would know. Why do you make decisions like this? Why do we make offerings like this? We are trying to be heroes. That's what it is. It is heroism, not... See, if Again, I ask you, we ask the question, if Jesus were there, would he have sanctioned something like this? He would have said, Jephthah, you do not know the word of God or the power of God or the character of God. Stop it. He would have stopped. This is why we need godly people. Now, you may remember, I talked about three institutions in the Old Testament and in the church. Priests, prophets, and kings. Or, which I should say, priests, kings, and prophets. And out of this... The prophets were instituted to keep the priests and the kings in balance. They were the checks and balance of these people. And we see this. And the prophets were the voice of God. Who brought, whenever the king or the priest erred, the prophet brought them in line. And when they did not listen to the prophet, of course there were false prophets as well. And as we have today. Okay, let me keep going. And Jephthah made a vow. He had the spirit of the Lord. That's what it says. Why couldn't he go and do what God wanted him to do? He wanted histrionics. He wanted a drum roll. He wanted the drama. He just didn't want the action. He wanted the drama, create a drama. He wanted to, you know, I mean, this is ultimate. He wanted to make God's story his story. When Jephthah returned to his house in Mizpah, who should come out? This is verse 34, Judges 11. And this is what the scripture says. Who should come out to meet him? but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels. No monkey, no donkey, no cat, his daughter. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Oh no, stupid man, If only you listen to your father of faith, your great father, Abraham. God asked him to sacrifice his son, but Abraham did not because God told him not to sacrifice. He could have said, hey, I got it all wrong. God, what do I do now? And God would have said the right thing. You don't sacrifice children because I get no pleasure out of sacrifices of children. I stopped it long a time ago. I stopped it during the time of Abraham. I stopped it during the time of Moses. Why do you want to sacrifice your daughter? No, don't do it. I get no pleasure out of it. But God did not ask you to do that. You pompous, silly man. That's what I call Jephthah. He may have had the spirit of God. He was a great king. But I would say, you silly, pompous, misguided man. Why didn't God stop him? For the same reason, God did not stop Cain from killing his brother. I can go on and talk about many others. Samson, King Saul, Queen Esther. I refuse to preach from the book of Esther. Yes, it's just one big bigotry and triumphalism. God wanted to save her and the Israelites, not murder everybody else. As soon as she gets power, what she does is worse than what Haman had intended to do. See, this, this is not God's will. This is not God's way. But take the Bible literally, it happened. But that doesn't mean that we have to condone it or go and do it. That's what we need to learn. I said there are leaders and there are leaders. Let us consider Joshua's immediate predecessor. Once God had a similar conversation with Moses, we find this in the book of Exodus chapter 33. Very similar conversation. God speaks to Moses, Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. You and the people you brought out of Egypt. I love the way God said, you brought out of Egypt. You know, it's almost like uh, uh, the prodigal son story where the older brother says, Oh, your son has come home. And the father says, your brother has come home. You know, it's beautiful how they have this conversation. It's a bit like that. God says to Moses, the people you brought out of Egypt and go up to the land. I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive. What a beautiful thing. I'll, I'll, I'll send you an escort, an angel. You know, I mean, what more can you have? I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Ammonites, Hitlites, Perizzites, Hevites, and all those otherites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Did you hear that? I will not go, I will send an angel, no problem, but I will not go with you. Why not? Because you are a stupid people or stiff-necked people. Uh, In modern English, it is stupid people. Uh, You are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. You can have an angelic escort, but I'm not going. So, let us summarize it. Go to the promised land, God said, given you permission. I will send an angel to drive out the enemies, no problem, but I will not go with you. You are a rebellious people. If I go with you, I might destroy you on the way before you make it to your destination. (laughs) What a wonderful way to put it. Before we can hear Moses' response to God, we have to go through a little narrative about the tent of meeting. And here we read, The Lord would speak to Moses, this is all in Exodus 33, face to face as one speak to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. None of the Israelites would eavesdrop on this conversation between God and Moses because a pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while this private cabinet meeting, that's all my translation by the way, private cabinet meeting was going on. However, there was one exception. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speak to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. There was one person overhearing all this conversation. Hello. Who was it? Just one person was privy to this entire cabinet meeting god and moses meeting joshua never opened his mouth but he never closed his ears and he heard the entire conversation every time they met god saying to moses you want to go to the promised land i will send you go i will send an angel but i'm not going with you but if i go i will destroy you people because you are a disobedient people one man just one man was allowed to listen in on this conversation he was a silent cabinet secretary who took notes at these meetings. He knew everything Moses knew. Moses responds to God. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. God said, you and your people you brought out of Egypt. Moses says, "Nana, no, no. let's get this right. These are your people. Moses says to God, in summarizing, give me an assistant. Teach me your ways so that I may know you. Teach me your ways so that I may continue to do what pleases you. And God said, you and your people you brought out of Egypt, Moses said, remember that this nation is your people. God's response to Moses, The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In the earlier conversation, he said, I'm not going. God says, I will go with you. Moses goes a step further. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If you are not coming with us, we are not going anywhere. That was Moses' resolution. But in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua says, Getting to the promised land is more important than anything else. So he tries to make God happy. Moses is almost pleading with God. Don't do it. Please don't send us to the promised land without you. I wonder what Joshua was feeling and thinking as he was listening to this conversation in silence. Did he agree with Moses? Or was he feeling frustrated like Judas when he saw Mary pour out that excessive pure perfume at Jesus' feet? We read... Judas did not like what Mary did. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold? Why wasn't the money given to the people, the poor people? It was worth a year's pay. Arr, what a waste. And what did Jesus say? But Jesus said, leave her alone. She's doing a good thing. I wonder, what would Jesus have said when Joshua embarked? on finding a scapegoat or an escape goat? Would Jesus have said, Joshua, this is not the way to get me on your side because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God and you do not know the character of God. If you knew those things, you wouldn't do this to make your God happy. I'm sorry folks, I have to wonder, what was Joshua thinking as he heard Moses refusing an offer that no man in his right mind would decline. Probably he was thinking, what are you Moses, nuts? God said he will send an angel to escort us. Can you imagine these Canaanites shaking in their sandals when they see us crossing the river Jordan, escorted by an angel? What more do you want? Well, if Joshua did think something along those lines, and if Moses could hear, What he was thinking Moses would have said Joshua my dear young boy the giver of the gift is more important than the gift the promised land without God is hell there is no promise in it Joshua my dearest boy let me tell you a secret who you are walking with is more important than where you are going if God is not coming with us An angel is not a substitute for God, Joshua. An angel is never a substitute for God. And we are not going anywhere unless God comes with us. If you walk with the right person, I'm sure Moses would have told him, you will get to the right place. Never take your eyes off the Lord your God. Keep your eyes on the Lord. So some people say, how was the conquest of Canaan just? I would say, wrong question. The right question is, what part of the conquest of Canaan was just? I hope I'm making sense. The question is not, was the conquest of Canaan just? The question is, what part of the conquest of Canaan was just? People and nations have been attacking and conquering others from the beginning of human history. I'm not saying it is right. But the question here is, where did Joshua and his men go wrong? And that will give us an understanding. And then the answer should be, if Jesus were there with Joshua at that time, would he have allowed this to happen? Now, we cannot avoid that question because we have Jesus. We know what Jesus said. We know what he taught. We know how he lived. So we have no excuse. We have to put Joshua on the dock and say, Joshua, you wanted to go into the promised land, but you didn't think much about whether God was coming with you or not, whether your actions are justified or not. Whereas Moses, his predecessor, said, if you are not coming with us, we are not going anywhere. The promised land is nothing without you. All the blessings of this world is nothing without the character of God. What makes us different? We have the character of God. If we don't have the character of God, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? The whole world, Jesus said, and lost the plot, the real purpose in life, the real meaning in life. What is heaven without God? Thank you very much. Go in peace.